Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. On today's program, we continue to look at the country Rwanda. The period between April 7 and July 4 is known as Kwibuku. It means remembrance. This period marks the 100 days of genocide in 1994, where the Tutsis were targeted by the Hutus. This year is 29 years since the genocide, and Rwanda has been catapulted once again into the international spotlight because of the UK offshore processing deal that was made with the Rwandan government. Last week we started this discussion, and today we'll conclude it. I spoke with Stephanie Kavanyana Kanyandakwe about Rwanda, the legacy of the genocide, how the country's healing, and what things are like today. Here's Stephanie. I'm Stephanie Kavanyana Kanyandakwe. I'm a Rwandan British artist and composer. Um, on a week to week basis, I'm also a radio broadcaster. I've got a show on ABC Classic where I put to good use my composition degree. Um, but outside of Radio Land, I create spaces for audience interaction and participation where we discuss communally what it means to be of a culture, what our cultures mean to us respectively, and find ways of documenting them uh, in a meaningful manner that can live on way past the project and can be taken home to live through people's daily lives. Well, speaking about healing and moving forward, in relation to Rwanda specifically then, how has the country healed post the genocide? We're 20 years later. How are relations not just between Rwanda and France and the international community, but between the Hutus and the Tutsis? So the first thing to address there is that as a group of people, we say that we are Rwandans. No one says they are Hutu or Tutsi anymore. There's a small group of Twa who say they are Twa, um, and that is generally quite supported. Um, they are a very distinct um, and minor historically minoritized group of people. Um, and so it is important that we support the Twa in maintaining their, their cultural identity and elements of their, their particular cultural identity that are so unique just to them. But in terms of who is Tutsi, who is Hutu, I mean, that, that becomes really hard when historically you have groups of people who intermarried and, and were quite happy and peaceful in doing so. So how do you get to say you're definitively one or the other? And with such a damaging history of uh, inappropriate, arbitrary allocation of ethnic identity, um, it becomes... Uh, unhelpful and unproductive for you to to do that anyway so the way forward for us first and foremost it's to say we are not separate groups of people we are one people we all speak the same language and we work together and one of the ways that we we work together is to reinstate some very traditional forms of Rwandan governance that are pre-colonial um, but have been helpful in the healing. So uh, in order to process what is literally 
into the thousands of genocidaires or um, genocide perpetrators, it, it's, it's still going through the Arusha courts, um, some of the big names and some of the orchestrators or the designers of the, that war machine. But we've also had what was called the Kacha traditional courts. So Gakacha is, is a way of conflict resolution where two groups of people or two individuals who aren't getting along in a community are brought together and they're brought together by elders of that particular region's community um, for, to hear each other out and to find a way that you're going to work together moving forward in future. This is the only way that we've been able to process thousands of genocidaires and also the only way that you can then literally live next door to someone who may have gone through that process. Rwanda is a very small country where, you know, uh, 12 million people in the size of what's essentially Tasmania or thereabouts. So it's highly densely populated. At any one time, you might think you're going for a walk in the bush, but honestly, you're going to see at least 20 people on your walk because we're everywhere. And so how do you find ways to communicate, to, um, to be a neighbour, to be a colleague, to be a student with a group who previously were connected with, with the genocide. The only way forward is having these local systems of governance and justice. Another one that has really brought us together and also has sped up the, um, the level of progression over time is called Umuganda. And this means community work. So once a month on a Saturday for about four hours from eight to 12, the whole country stops, everything shuts and everybody goes into community service mode. You go to your local community centre, so think like, you know, in Australian terms, your local council, um, and rock up to the office and say, okay, what are we doing today? And it could be everything from uh, repaving a road to painting a local school's um, gate or planting trees in a local park. But having millions of people every month working side by side in rebuilding the country, rebuilding this place that was absolutely decimated, piece by piece, rubble by rubble, bone and rag by bone, it forces a level of tolerance that eventually leads to acceptance and leads to people quite peacefully being able to live and work together without that overarching fear. Well, again, I mean, you've painted actually quite a beautiful picture of self-governance. And uh, I mean, I think you did really address how Rwanda is healing post-genocide. Looking at Rwanda today, though, there are, there are um, factors, uh, global um, movements beyond Rwanda's control. I'm speaking specifically about climate change, economic stress, the pandemic, the war in Ukraine. Rwanda, looking at Rwanda today, how is the country dealing with these factors? It's great to bring up 
elements like climate change as it's very often in these types of conversations globally around climate change you hear western world leaders speak of it as if it's only a western concern and only has western solutions um first nations people globally have been thinking about and working on climate change. And for us as a fairly subsistence nation um, that has based a lot of uh, its wealth and internal support on agriculture, climate change has been a huge factor for us. We're very high off the seaboard. Rwanda has a very temperate climate. It's about 21 to 27 on average. The very nice weather, um, but it's very high, has a, an enormous mountain range that rings the country border and then dips in the middle in, in a kind of bowl. So we've got a microclimate that is all of our own. And we've been noticing the heat changes and what that's done to some of our snow caps up on the mountains, all the way down to um, the flow and supply of the Nile. As, as we are one of the lakes that supports it. So what we've been looking at is investing heavily in STEM. Um, so science, technology, uh, engineering and mathematics, STEM, that kind of catch-all for um, technological advancement and progression, that's something that Rwanda sees itself as, as a leader of um, in the country. We jokingly say that we're Wakanda in a lot of ways um, because uh, we've been looking at ways to make sure that our nation's economy isn't negatively impacted from the shift in agricultural rendering because our crops are being greatly affected by climate change. So too, when it comes to um, economic stress of war, again, we have to think as a small country that doesn't have high level production um, uh, economic goods. So we don't have oil, for example, we don't have uh, diamonds, we don't have oil, we don't have those, those massive uh, cash growing elements to our particular economy. The biggest export that we have is, is coffee and rice, you know, and they're not high, high dollars per kilo yields. So we have to look at what can a small country do successfully. We've built the Kigali Innovation Hub, and Rwanda has was one of the first people to get 5G internet um, and has a really high speed internet access across the nation. So when I'm home on my ancestral mountain up in the west in Changugu, I have higher bars there on my phone than I do very often in the streets of Melbourne. And that's because developing this, this internet system allows for micro exchange for small farming groups and for people. So we use mobile money systems. That's something Australia is yet to do. I think New Zealand's already been on that train for the last couple of years. But having mobile money systems allows for microfinance. Um, and these types of mechanisms really have a huge impact on groups of people whose average weekly income is lucky to be 20 to $100 um, when we're looking at some of the far remote regional areas that are just subsistence living. So by investing in STEM, by looking forward into the future, we've just released the first flagship um, artificial intelligence program 
in Africa is, is now in Rwanda and also addressing the pandemic with imbued knowledge from experience. We have been on the border of Congo forever. In fact, parts of Congo once were Rwanda, but again, that's another pre-colonial story. Um, and so, you know, the level of Ebola that we have seen due to uh, the ongoing a re, um, conflict that that happens internally in Congo and the dire need of, of health care there um, has allowed us to learn from our neighbours and to learn, okay, well, what do we do? What do we snap into when a wave of something comes into our very small landlocked nation? And so very quickly, Rwanda instilled some mechanisms that Australia didn't even get round to. We had public hand-washing stations. We had mandatory mask wearing well before Australia did. And when it comes to addressing vaccination, well, we would be a higher vaccination country were it not for the fact that vaccination supply to parts of Africa, ourselves included, is still quite limited. And that is out of our control. So we have a country who, who wants to move very quickly um, with this new pandemic future, uh, and we've moved as best as, as we, we can and have been relatively um, limited in our effect from the pandemic compared to some of our neighbours. But we still mourn the loss of thousands who have died and, as we believe, died unnecessarily because we've had a nation who is so forward thinking in its technology and, and systems of healthcare and, and public sanitation that we really are just keen to move forward with uh, a faster moving vaccination program. And as for the war in Ukraine, um, obviously with a country that has gone through such a, a significant series of genocides and series of wars, you know, 1994 is not the first um, it comes after many other genocides in Rwanda's history. We have a deep sympathy for what the people of Ukraine are going through um, and have said that we're, we're wanting to help and try and help as best we can. We understand that, you know, there have been times throughout our crisis that we as people have been refugees in other nations. And so to open our doors to accept refugees in support, because we understand that that is a really key part of working together and thinking of yourself, not only as a nation, but part of a global human society. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Accent of Women. I'm speaking with Stephanie Cavagnana Kanyandakwe, a Rwandan British composer and storyteller. We're talking about Rwanda, the legacy of the genocide, how the country's healing and what things are like today. Well, I just want to talk about this issue of receiving refugees because Rwanda has been catapulted back into the international spotlight recently with the UK sealing a deal with the Rwandan government to send asylum seekers that are crossing the English Channel to an offshore processing facility in Rwanda. I know, I know it might be too early to see what this means, but do you have thoughts on this program? I don't have 
thoughts on it yet because to be honest I don't know enough about it yet it's it's really quite new that this has come out um and I whilst I can see a lot of reports written from the UK's side I'm yet to see reports written from the Rwandan side and I think that's always important um to understand that whenever there are political um, connections between countries internationally and through their own uh, their own government systems, so Rwanda and the UK both being a part of the Commonwealth, um, there's going to be a certain amount of public display of the, the positive aspects of any major action that takes place. As to how it affects the Rwandese people um, on a day-to-day -day basis, how, how it's going to be initiated and run in Rwanda, where that's going to happen, these are all details that I'm yet to see and I'd be really interested to see what the Rwandan government has to say about this um, as it unfolds. Um, and yeah, I think it's really a, a watch this space kind of moment because I'm, I'm reluctant to make any comment only having one side. It's always beneficial, particularly when it comes to, you know, um, the understanding of particular groups having colonial ties once upon a time that you listen to the people who are of a nation as well as listening to a newly found connection. We've been friends with and we're in the Commonwealth with England and the UK from 2009. That's pretty new in, in the history of our country that goes across millennia and our people that go across millennia. So I, I want to hear from Rwanda first before I have any further thoughts as I don't feel like I've got all the information right now. Yeah, so completely fair enough. I did, I did um, jump to that. I, I actually wanted to ask you another question about life in Rwanda today, which is that a reasonable measure of social progress tends to be the status of women. Well, and by that, I mean educational outcomes, um, statistics in relation to early marriage, access to healthcare, including abortion, that kind of thing. What's the situation like for women in Rwanda? Are, are incredibly valued and key part of society. So much so that Rwanda is the first to say that it's off the backs of women that we have been able to enjoy such a fast um, turnaround of events, such a fast development and progress through Rwandan women in leadership. So uh, Rwanda holds the record for the most women in parliament has done so for I think it's over a decade at least now. Currently it sits around 61.3%, um, I think for the lower house and 38.5% for the upper house. So collectively uh, Rwanda has the most female parliamentarians and this is very directly a cause of what happened in the genocide. There's um, generally seen a hierarchy of who was targeted and male politicians uh, were definitely targeted as, as first and foremost key, um, key people to get rid of during the 1994 genocide against the Tutsis. So this leads to a position where if you are without so many male politicians, who do you put in there? And 
women are right there and ready. And we're also right there and ready in terms of reinstating our pre-colonial um, perspective on women. So we, we aren't the so-called patriarchal society system that Europe has imposed on us, not only through colonial rule, but through missionary rule as well. That's a key element to bring into the mix too. There's, there's ways that religion reinforce some of those binaries. Um, so traditionally women held such a high position in society that the king's first advisor was always his mother-in-law. And the reason why that existed is because the mum-in-law is someone who is not your blood relation, but is deeply connected to the female networks of conversation, what's going on in different groups, would get reports from various chiefdoms across our then kingdom of the time, the kingdom of Rwanda, Rundi and would feed back to the king and say, well, over here, this is what's going on and you need to support this group of people in these particular ways, etc." So given that that's our style of governance to have a balanced perspective where everybody has a role and is talking to particular groups to gain information around um, support and rule, it makes sense that women are such a key part of our parliamentary directions, but also that we have instilled in our constitution that women are to be protected and, and women are to be supported. So we have um, an office, there's a whole ministerial office that is just for women. Um, there's a lot of education initiatives that are supportive of women, particularly from poorer backgrounds. Um, and when it comes to access to healthcare, that is something that has been hugely developed since the time of the genocide. So we've been able to take um, the infant mortality rate and the um, maternal mortality rate from quite a high number down significantly over the last almost three decades now. And we're in a situation where healthcare for women is largely free if you need it or at a reasonable cost. Um, and the public healthcare system is a, a rapidly developing space, particularly when it comes to um, insertion in, in new technologies as well. I mean, one of the ways that we've been looking at, say, for example, PCR testing in Rwanda is to use robots. Like that's, that's the style of healthcare that, um, that you can expect to receive and how this trickles down to working with women. It also means that if there's not a specialist for what you need present, then you might have a series of telehealth appointments um, with different specialists who are, say, in neighbouring countries as part of your pre-prep before potential travel. And again, there are support programs for that as well. Well, Stephanie, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I've learned so much over the course of our conversation and I really appreciate you know, your time, your knowledge and your sharing all of that with us, with me, with the listeners. Was there anything you wanted to add to the discussion? I think my main thing, and I say this slightly tongue-in-cheek, but I also really mean it, is that I would really love to get to a point where when I say I'm, I'm Rwandan, people don't think of 
one of three things connected to my cultural identity. They don't think of gorillas, genocide, or coffee. <laughs> you know, those are the three elements that most most often people talk about. Um, I'd love to get to a point where people are excited to learn about the music, the artistry, um, the craftspersonship that comes from Rwanda, the developing technologies, the fact that Rwanda's one of the first makers of mobile phones in Africa. You know, I, I would love to get into the future a place where people don't always assume negativity and a horrible time as the only defining features of Rwanda and Rwandans. We have this beautiful campaign that we started with Arsenal, the English football club, and it's simply titled Visit Rwanda. So on every Arsenal jersey you're going to see on their, on their shoulders, they've got a huge Visit Rwanda emblazoned on their shoulder. And they mean it. We, we really want people to feel safe and to feel like we're a place that you can come, have a fantastic holiday, but also learn a lot about a culture that is finding its feet again and wanting to share so much with the world in a very positive face smiling way um and in future i hope you know the next conversation we have giselle is not anything to do with genocide but it's to do with all of the amazing um artistic and economic achievements that we've got lying in store well, I will let you hold me to that. And yes, absolutely. <laughs> Stephanie, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Stephanie Kavanyana Kanyandakwe, a Rwandan British composer and storyteller. We were talking about Rwanda, the legacy of the genocide, how the country's healing and what things are like today. And that concludes our two-part discussion about Rwanda. If you missed part one, go back and check out the podcast on 3CR's website. But that's all we have time for on today's program of Accent of Women. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally by the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. The music for Accent of Women was written and produced by George Kanjeri. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website. That's 3cr.org.au. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week.